Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Hajar Yazdia, the author of The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. In The Struggle for the People's King, Yazdia demonstrates how in the post-civil rights era, wide-ranging groups from people with disabilities to women's rights activists and LGBTQ coalitions have made claims that echo those made by civil rights activists in the 1960s, while at the same time, white right-wing social movements from family values coalitions to the alt-right now also claim the collective memory of civil rights to portray themselves as the newly oppressed minorities. The struggle for the people's king reveals how, as these powerful groups make remake collective memory, Toward competing political ends, they generate offshoots of remembrance that distort history and threaten the very foundations of multicultural democracy. Hajar Yazdia is an assistant professor of sociology and faculty affiliate of the Equity Research Institute at the University of Southern California. She is also a faculty affiliate of the Center for Security, Race, and Rights at Rutgers University. Her research examines the mechanisms underlying the politics of inclusion and exclusion as they shape intergroup boundaries, ethno-racial identities, and intergroup relations. This work crosses subfields of race and ethnicity, migration, social movements, culture, and law, using mixed methods including interview, survey, historical, and computational text analysis. Hajar Yazdia, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. So um, one of the again, I, I want to start by saying how much I appreciated your book. I'm I'm teaching uh, social movements right now in, at the undergraduate level, and I've been able to draw so much on your work in talking to my undergraduates about contemporary issues. Oh, as, that as means well so much about, to me. Yeah, thank as well you. As about, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, so you write about this in a very compelling way in the introduction to your book. So I'd like to begin our talk today by asking you to explain to our listeners what brought you to this project. Yeah, I you know it's so interesting because at the time I was a graduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and it was during the Obama era and I was seeing the rise of this reactionary politics from the right, specifically a kind of growing perception of white victimhood under the Obama presidency. The idea that white people were now under threat, that there was reverse racism against them. And one of the more interesting phenomena that was emerging was I kept hearing Dr. King's words getting invoked by these right wing reactionaries to claim that he himself would be opposed to race conscious legislation, things like affirmative action or even voting rights acts that made sure that states had to run their changes to legislation, you know, past the federal government. So I had this question of how do we get to this point? when Dr. King's words can be invoked, so decontextualized, so running counter to the kind of historical context in which he gave them, 
in a mainstream setting. So how is it that we're on the main stage using Dr. King through a complete revisionist history? And that was really what sparked the research. But in some ways, and you talk about this a little in the introduction, there were some more personal elements to this as well. Yes, there certainly were. And, you know, for listeners, I am the daughter of Iranian political refugees, and I was born in Germany myself. And so, you know, we came to the States and I was growing up in a predominantly white community in Northern Virginia. And so I was always grappling with these questions of identity and belonging, and especially being non-white and non-Black in a country that's so founded by this binary of Black-white identity. And so, yeah, always just kind of struggling to figure out where I fit in. And it was in reading these histories of Black thought, you know, folks like Du Bois, you know, eventually reading Dr. King, Audre Lorde, James Baldwin. These are the folks who really helped me understand that I didn't lie outside the bounds of Blackness and whiteness. I was actually situated within in that system. And my own identity was created in relationship to them. So, you know, it was really in understanding that and, and coming to see myself within the larger struggle that I became completely fascinated with this idea of the civil rights movement and the idea that people from below, especially young people, could come together and create such massive waves of systemic change. So you begin your study in the struggle for the people's king with the idea of collective memory. Now, I've encountered this term before, and I've actually had occasion to teach it to my graduate students, but your version of it is so clear that I'm hoping that you can explain to our listeners um, what you what we mean by the term collective memory, how it's constructed, and what does it have to do with politics? Yeah, I think it's one of the big questions because we hear the word memory and we think it means something deeply individual, that it just lives within our mind, that it is created through our individual experiences. And collective memory is quite distinct because it's also distinct from history, right? History is this kind of objective telling and objective, of course, is in quotes. It's always its own political process, but it's defined as a kind of academic and objective representation of the past that lives in the textbooks. But collective memory, on the other hand, is this process of storytelling. It is a political and a cultural process, and it really reveals how groups in society have interpreted history and then how that's been institutionalized at a national level, whether through monuments or national holidays, you know, these kind of public media representations of the past. All of these come together in this process of storytelling to tell the story of who we were as a nation and then how that shapes who we are. So collective memory becomes really foundational to national identity. It, and more, and that, not just, I think, national identity, but identity on a lot of different levels. And, and this, is, uh, this is sort of tangential to your book, but I think it's related. Um, just as I was finishing reading uh, your book, uh, there was a story in the local paper today about a, a really interesting moment in the, I, I'm talking to you from outside of Detroit, Michigan. <sighs> and uh, in the 1970s, following uh, what, what you know, and this is even a contested term, uh, what is often called an uprising in the city of Detroit in the late 60s, uh, we inaugurated a black mayor. And Coleman A. Young gave a speech at his inauguration during which he said um, the the criminals and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, could get out of Detroit. And he used a very interesting phrase that, that has a, a local resonance where the boundary between 
the the urban and the suburban is marked by a road called Eight Mile Road. And some people will know it from the movie uh, starring mm -hmm. Eminem. Um, and I, I, the the way that that phrase, you know, again, and this is the distinction that I drew, that you draw so clearly between history and collective memory. Historically, all he was doing is telling criminals that they weren't no longer welcome in the city. But it was heard, and the collective memory of that phrase is that it was a racist attack against the white uh, power structure outside of the city. Wow! I, I, it just, it, it just, it, it again. Your, your, your version of it was 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 so so interesting to me as I was reading that that it, it kind of just brought it all back. Yeah, no, that's the perfect example. And you're right. It's not always about a national collective memory. I think for me in the book, that is the way that we think about the retelling of the civil rights movement is as something that is a national domain, right? It is a national resource for us all to draw upon when we think about the nation's story of who it was, dealing with the kind of spoiled identity of this history of enslavement, and then Jim Crow, and then coming up, and it's a redemption story. But what I talk about a lot is that in telling that sanitized version of the redemption story, so much gets lost and that that's actually part of the intentional political project. So speaking to your point, I mean, I think, you know, thinking about collective memories at even a group level, at a place-based level, I think it's a way to think more about the variation in collective memory and what stories get told and why they're so foundational to the story of what a place is and then also who a people are. Yeah, and, and again, I'm sorry to... to if we're belaboring this, but uh, as I was beginning this class, I was telling you earlier about teaching social movements. I asked my students and undergraduates, so, you know, a lot of them taking it for uh, general education credit. So they're coming from you know, a large variety of different, um, you know, backgrounds. Uh, I asked them what the civil rights movement was about. And only one of them could identify that it was a struggle about African-Americans. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. It, everybody just sort of equated it broadly with the idea of human rights in this sort of general vague sense. Uh, but only one said, no, it was about black people. Oh, my gosh. That, that's wild. And it's funny because I do even talk in the book about these studies about, you know, the revisionist histories that have led Americans to not even understand that slavery was a core cause of the Civil War, which, yeah. you know, Nikki Haley, too, recently completely avoided discussing yeah, yeah. that when she's asked the question. But, you know, your answer is telling me more about just the depth of sanitizing history, very partial historical education in schools, and the fact that youth are growing up not realizing that this is a, a story about racism for the civil rights movement. That is so concerning to me. Yeah, it was astonishing. So in the second chapter of the book, you develop a model for how collective memory is mobilized by social actors. Can you tell us a little bit about this model and how it works to kind of map the way that, that civil rights has been activated in a variety of different contexts? Yeah. So the way that I describe it is I say that I'm developing a critical theory of memory and contentious politics. And so what that entails is initially tracing these uses and misuses of the memory of Dr. King and of the civil rights movement over a 40 year span. So from 1980 to 2020. And so what I do in that initial conceptualization is I trace them and I create this metaphor of a tree with gnarled branches, because theoretically, we often think about uses of 
of collective memory as more like something that looks like a long bow. So it's a trajectory. It's something that has been coined reputational trajectories. And it means that prior uses of memory will enable and constrain subsequent uses of memory. But what I find, especially tracing these 40 years, is that instead of these long bows, it looks much more like these gnarled branches where you have these competing intertwined uses of memory and they're oppositional and they're tied up in these different thematic kind of categories. And so, you know, I go into depth about what these different branches are and how they're in opposition. But it comes together under this idea of the theory of memory and contentious politics. And what I emphasize is that by creating a critical perspective on memory, it really helps us understand what I say are these three interconnected dynamics for understanding how memory actually shapes all of our contemporary politics. So it's the idea that the uses of memory are always unfolding relationally. And so that means that in relationship to other groups, in relationship to larger power structures, and in relationship to the past, it also means that groups are always negotiating these multiple and competing temporalities. So this for me is one of the big kind of takeaways in the crux of the book is taking time really seriously. So thinking about time as something more than a finite measurement, but also thinking about it as something that's perceived, as something that's temporal. And so the approach when you bring these three pieces together and the third piece is perceptions is looking not only at the tools that social movements are using, you know, we often think about frames or resources or tactics, but also thinking about who is using them. So their relative level of power in society, the way that their identity is socially constructed and positioned in relationship to other groups. And so I'm really arguing that where groups stand relative to one another, the relative power that they have is also shaping their relationship to the past, to the future. It creates their perceptions of the urgency of now, their perceptions of threat and then also of their timescape of action. And so I think when you bring the pieces together, I'm trying to tell a story about how it really matters that we take the past seriously when we think about why things are the way that they are in the present. So the main chapters of the book focus on essentially different case studies of how the collective memory of the civil rights movement is being mobilized in sometimes strikingly different ways. The first of these case study chapters looks at LGBTQ rights and how the expansion of those rights was contested by so-called family values activists. What uses did these movements put King's legacy to? Yeah. And just to give the overview, so there are these three chapters with these case studies. And what I'm arguing is that when you examine these battles between these rival movements and you think about the uses of memory in interaction, you actually see the systems of power that are enabling and constraining how the groups use memory. And then what I say is that they activate these moral, national, and racial boundaries. And so the LGBTQ chapter is a really good case study for showing how those moral boundaries of memory get activated. And this is the question of, you know, to whom the memory belongs, you know, for whom it can be used. And moral meanings really get embedded in the social identities of the groups that are actually mobilizing. And so you could think about how morality is one of the ways that LGBTQ groups have been long kind of stigmatized and discredited, the idea that they are by their very nature immoral. So in these cases, what I find is that the quote unquote family values movement 
is really developing a strategy that actually uses King, co-ops his Christianity, and uses him as a symbol that's opposed to LGBTQ rights. And so one of the kind of my favorite, if you don't want to call it that, it's disturbing, but it's one of my favorite examples because it's so clear, is this case in 2003, or excuse me, 2001 in Miami. And it's this case where the family values movement is trying to mobilize to repeal a human rights ordinance that has been protecting sexual orientation amongst other identity groups. And they want to repeal it. They just don't even want it to be in the ordinance. And so they develop these flyers and they're going to put it to vote, right, to get it repealed. They develop these flyers that say Martin Luther King did not march or die for this. King would be outraged if he knew homosexualist extremists were abusing the civil rights movement to get special rights based on their sexual behavior. And so this quote is juxtaposed with an image of two men kissing. And it's a flyer that they distribute at Black churches all over Miami. And they're trying to drum up support for repealing this human rights ordinance. And at the same time, they're also trying to create a wedge within otherwise progressive groups because they figure if they can get the Black evangelicals on board, then they're not going to have progressive support for gay rights. And so it's really this story of how this moral authority of Dr. King is getting co-opted, how it's getting used as a a kind of moral cloak for this cause that's actually quite anti-Kingian. And then on the other hand, you know, the rival group, which is at this point the LGBTQ rights movement, they have to think, what are we going to do? Because we've been claiming we're the new civil rights movement and now we're being discredited. And what I show in that chapter is they then have to turn to Coretta Scott King. And at the time, she's the one who comes out and kind of saves the day because she makes this huge statement where she effectively says, my husband believed in gay rights because he believed in the beloved community and everybody is included in the beloved community. So when that ordinance goes to vote, it actually, um, you know, it doesn't pass, but it is really, really, really close. And that's the part that's scary, right? Is that, you know, the strategy was actually quite effective. And I show that, you know, in the next 10 and 20 years in that chapter, you find that the gay rights and the LB, I mean, excuse me, in the family values movement, they both have to innovate tactically because the meanings of Dr. King are becoming so watered down and prolific that they're losing their moral authority. And so each group has to kind of shift the way they think about their relationship to King and also to the past, which for the Christian activists in particular means that they increasingly use King to claim that they are the new minorities and that King would be ruining, you know, the loss of Christian rights and Christian minorities in this country. Again, it's it's just a fascinating case study Um, and and it kind of signals to the next one, which is uh, uh, the conflict over immigrant rights. And again, how the different sides in this issue use the collective memory of the civil rights movement to argue for their respective positions. And here, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to ask you to read a passage that I really think demonstrates an important part of your argument. Uh, On page 118, uh, the opening paragraph of the section, the increasingly gnarled branches of collective memory. Yes. And this comes um, after the immigrant workers freedom ride, just to kind of set it up. And just like that, the ride was over. The media coverage faded and the prospect of immigration reform receded from public view once more. While many white Americans' consciousness of the immigrant struggle would dissipate, replaced by the perceived threat of Islamist terrorism and a burgeoning war in Iraq, immigrant communities' political consciousness was irrevocably awakened. 
These new activists imagined their collective agency, political and cultural opportunities for the first time. And their goals were not merely policy changes. As writer Jerry Atkin wrote, so if the Freedom Ride was not a quick fix, perhaps it was a catalyst for change. As we rolled across the country, communities came together to support the Freedom Riders in a way that had not happened since 9-11. Everywhere we went, people seemed hungry for justice, and we gave them a chance to remember the power of their vision, the goodness of this work. The ripples spread out from the Freedom Ride in our lives and the communities around us. The consequences of the rides were felt among the group through this new sense of collective identity and linked fate. But they were also felt individually for immigrants who were learning the ropes of the American political system, gaining a sense of efficacy and empowerment and collective action, and understanding the potential limits of an assimilationist strategy. So one of the things I love about that that paragraph and, and really this case study is the way it plays with, and it's not exactly the right term, but the way it engages with um, these sort of twin goals that I think movements for social change often have. On one level, obviously, they're fighting for some material, tangible benefit, right? But on another level, they're they're also activating a kind of meaning-based change. And, and that paragraph so strikingly demonstrates how even when one fails, the other one can be mobilized. That's right. Yeah, I'm so happy you picked up on that because for me, that is one of the things that I really hope readers will take away is this idea that so often even folks that become involved in movements, they think about the real successes as the ones that are immediate to their goals. And a lot of times the goals are kind of legal gains, they're policy gains. But there's so much more that comes out of social movements, whether it's a shift in attitudes, a shift in the way we talk about things, the political discourse, and then also a shift in the activists themselves, which I think, especially in the case of folks who are coming into the political process for the first time, in this case, it's these immigrant workers who have truly been laboring. So it's not like they've had time to participate in American politics in a kind of proper sense. This is their first time to engage in the American political system through activism, to learn the ropes, as I write. And I think it also helps them understand the limits of that system. I think it's a way to understand, oh, there's only so much that law and policy can do. Beyond that, belonging is going to mean something far greater, and it's going to require something that requires a shift in understanding what it means to belong. And maybe it doesn't mean belonging to the dominant group. Maybe it means finding community amongst other similarly racialized groups and building those coalitions and spaces. And this chapter, the the story of the Freedom Ride is, is so moving for uh, for showing that. Um, I, I, I'm, we sort of uh, kind of jumped to the middle here, but can you describe a little bit about what took place? Yeah, I mean, I think this is... First of all, I think it's such a good example of what good organizing looks like, which is a time-intensive process. It is deeply thoughtful. It requires a lot of meetings. I mean, they start planning this Freedom Ride in 2001, and it comes out of the labor movement. And so there are immigrant rights activists who really want to get immigration reform on the table for immigrant workers who have been deeply oppressed and exploited and abused. And so they're thinking about how to create a kind of public consciousness around this and try to get Congress to pay attention. And they think a freedom ride, just like 
like the Freedom Riders of the 60s would be a way to cross the country, raise consciousness, and create that level of performative drama that the civil rights movement was so good at. But of course, and this is where the piece that the thoughtfulness comes in, they realized that the collective memory of the civil rights movement is not their own and that it belongs to Black Americans in their perception. And so they work really closely, having a lot of meetings for an entire year with Black communities and Black civil rights leaders to effectively get their blessing, to get them to sign on and say, yes, this is okay for you to do and we will stand with you. And so once they get that, they enroll this Freedom Ride in 2003. And I mean, it's tons and tons of buses crossing the country. They are stopping at the sites of civil rights movement battles, and they are getting off the bus. They're creating civil disobedience. And there's a ton of media attention. And then you also have these prominent civil rights figures like John Lewis coming out and giving these speeches. And it's so effective that, on the other hand, the nativists start to kind of come out of the fringes and they realize this is a real threat. These immigrant rights activists are coming together in a way that is scaring them. And at this point, they're disorganized. And so they're coming out and they're trying to discredit those uses of civil rights memory by saying these are illegal immigrants. They are not from this country. And you cannot make that analogy to black rights because black people are citizens. And so they're using this kind of classic divide and conquer wedge strategy where they're trying to drive black people out of the immigrant rights movement to say these people are actually threatening your livelihood and they are using the symbols of your history. So it's that question of to whom collective memory belongs and then how collective memory can actually become an expansive bridge. It can draw people in. It can be a space for collective liberation. And I think that's the open question that actually runs into the next chapter. Yeah. Uh, and so let's talk about that. Um, this is a chapter that deals with uh, a very interesting case of how Muslims fought for acceptance in the U.S. And you describe this as taking place across three fairly distinct time frames. So how did activists make use of the collective memory of civil rights to argue for and, to be fair, against Muslim inclusion? Yeah. So this is interesting for me because it was a puzzle. So um, Basically, every minority rights group in this United States has used the tools of the civil rights movement. And this has been called the minority rights revolution, the rise of the civil rights society. And it's because the tools of the civil rights movement have been really effective. And, you know, they give us this ready-made set of frames and strategies and a legal framework for gaining rights for other similarly oppressed groups. But then you have these Muslim immigrants, and they've predominantly immigrated after the 1980s. And... They are not using the strategy. And it was this question of, well, so why is it that all these other groups have and the Muslim immigrant rights movement hasn't? And so when I looked at it more closely and did the archival research and then did these focus groups where we kind of got these retrospective takes, the answer was that for a long time, they had really pursued this kind of aspirational whiteness, as they called it, which does not mean that they were trying to change the color of their skin. But it is that story of immigration in America where assimilation means that whiteness is the standard that is the dominant group, that is the path toward upward mobility. And so you position yourself in relationship to white people. You pursue white neighborhoods, white schools, careers that are predominantly white, because these are the symbols of status. These are the symbols of having made it. And so having pursued that, the 9-11 moment is this recognition that no matter how much these Muslim immigrants have, you know, 
forge these relationships with their white community members, that they have made friends in high places. You know, they have been law abiding. They're highly educated. They have high paying careers. And yet they are still subject to surveillance. They are still being seen as threats to homeland security. And that is the recognition that forces them to really grapple with who they see themselves as. And this is where they start to pick up some of the tools of the civil rights movement. And I say that, you know, during this initial era, a lot of this work is kind of adopting a colorblind Dr. King, where it's the idea that, you know, Dr. King really believed we were all Americans and, you know, fighting for civil rights is one of the most American things you can do. But as time progresses, and specifically once more news comes out, especially during the Obama era of all of the undercover surveillance that's taking place in mosques and schools and Muslim student associations, as Muslims are developing that critical consciousness, this is especially the younger generation that's been growing up in the 9-11 era, and that is frustrated. They are realizing that they're deeply racialized in the same ways that they see their Latinx colleagues racialized the same way that their Black American colleagues are racialized. And that is the recognition that allows them to start thinking about the more radical king. This is where they start picking up some of the more radical histories of the civil rights movement and realizing that a solidarity politics that rejects the whole premise of American identity as blending into the dominant group, which in this case means white supremacy, that is the kind of pathway forward. That is the pathway to belonging. But, you know, it's also a chapter that really grapples with the rival movement, which is the Islamophobia movement, who's similar to the nativists in the prior chapter. And actually, there's quite a bit of overlap between these groups. This is a rival movement that is claiming to discredit their uses of civil rights by claiming that not only are they not American, but that they are impure threats to the racial nation, you know, that they are security threats, you know, and that they truly do not even belong in the same language of American civil rights. And these are always the the kind of dilemmas that these movements have to grapple with is they're being discredited. And at the same time, these right wing groups are increasingly claiming that they are the victims. So if Muslims are going to get civil rights, then white, you know, Christian Americans are under threat. And we saw this with the rise of the moral panic around Sharia, for example. So those are some of the questions that emerge is really thinking about the limits of collective memory for a true solidarity politics, and then also these questions of belonging. It also strikes me that this is a chapter that it is, I'm trying to think of the right way to say this, it, it moves not just towards the case study itself, but also about what you just described there as, as the sort of the memory of King. And the fact that there was a radical king that that we don't want to pay attention to. You know, I mean, we're coming up on the holiday here, um, mm -hmm. but we don't want to pay attention to in this in very much anymore. But that that is very much a part of 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 what his message was about. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's always this challenge where I talk a lot about how the dominant narrative in the book, the one that's being handed down by power, is the one of the whitewashed king who really upholds our story of American exceptionalism, of the American dream, of this kind of neoliberal project where any individual can rise up if they just pull themselves up from their bootstraps, and that Dr. King would really believe in individual liberties and state rights. So that's the story that gets handed down by you know the Reagan administration when he 
he signs the King holiday into law. This is the one that right-wing groups pick up on over time. But what I also say in the book is that even the kind of democratic establishment buys into this idea that King really is a symbol of the American dream and that he is a story of, you know, good people coming together and this redemption story. And this is the one that immigrant rights activists initially pick up. It's the same one that Muslim rights activists initially pick up. And it sounds rosy, it sounds friendly, and it is safe. And that is the big thing, is that it's safe to Americans, and that's why it's palatable. But it's the radical king who many Black activists have kept alive this whole time, the true king, the one who was opposed to the triple evils of racism and militarism and capitalism. This is the king that starts to emerge more in the 2010s as the reactionary politics from the right are leading these young activists to realize the old tools are just not going to dismantle the master's house, you know, in the words of Audre Lorde. So we have to think about things in a new way and resurrecting the radical king is one way to think about our interconnected struggles, not just across racial groups in the United States, but also globally. So well, let's talk about Audre Lorde then. So the final chapter, or not quite the final chapter, the final one to the conclusion, has a somewhat different feel to it. And here it seems that you're moving away from analysis, strictly speaking, towards more advocacy. So tell mm-hmm. us here what you mean by restoring the intersectional legacies of the civil rights movement. Yeah, this was a chapter where, you know, I had shown through three chapters the struggles of deploying the collective memory of King and the civil rights movement. I'd shown you know, the patterns that emerged through these moral and national and racial boundaries. But my question was, what is the pathway forward, right? Is there any hope of actually repairing or coming together? Or are we just in, you know, irrevocably separated, right? Are we, is the polarization so deep that we're just never going to be able to repair it? So this chapter for me was thinking about the case of the Me Too movement as it's emerging in the wake of Black Lives Matter and how these white feminists who initially are kind of taking the the front stage for the Me Too movement have to grapple with the fact that these histories of taking on sexual assaults in the United States are rooted in the advocacy of Black women and that Black women's contributions have actually been central to just about every movement in America, every fundamental movement for social change that's actually created any form of racial progress or social progress. And it's those challenges. And so this is much more of, I did a social media analysis for this chapter. And then it's also a little bit of a a kind of content analysis of news and these public reports. And I think for me, there was that question that remained because it is a chapter that does show how these black women's histories come to the forefront. You know, there's a point where they they call, I think, 2018, the year of the black woman. There is a resurgence in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings of really taking Anita Hill seriously and kind of atoning for the fact that she was not believed and that she was not listened to. And so black women come to the forefront. I mean, everybody's saying black women are going to save us. But then I'm also thinking about to the extent that this is just performative, that it's potentially just a kind of cover for maintaining the same systems beneath. And it's an open question that ends that chapter as a Black woman comes to become the CEO of the Me Too movement in 2020. And it's a question of, you know, will white feminists actually be able to come around? Is this an intersectional future in the making? Or is this just a kind of new face of the old process? I'm I'm tempted to ask, what's the answer to that? Yeah, I've been grappling with this too. And I think a 
Yeah, a lot of scholars have, especially because of the wake of George Floyd and the way everybody was putting out these statements about anti-racism and reading all the Ibram Kendi books. And, you know, now that we've seen this anti-DEI backlash and the way that it's taken shape in such an insidious way, I mean, Claudine Gay, you know, getting kind of booted from her presidency at Harvard, for example, but we're seeing it all across the board is backlash to DEI, DEI programs being repealed. And it's not that DEI was ever the solution. I think it's when I'm thinking about the answer to the question I posed, I think it's the fact that Dismantling these systems takes a lot more than the symbolic and performative kind of pieces, and that it is the, I'm going to use the word reparations, but it is the piece that's about the redistribution of resources, the true reckoning that is missing. And I think that's the piece that actually yields the true change. And yet it is something that we have yet to see. Although the roadmap is there, right? I mean, when we talk Certainly. about redistribution of resources, that goes back to to the radical king, right? Absolutely. I mean, it, it, towards the end of his life, he he started to turn towards, um, not not turn towards, but, but be more outspoken about the need for a redistribution of resources. You're absolutely right. And I do say that the Poor People's Campaign that King was starting, this idea that we'd have this multiracial coalition from the grassroots to take up the cause of, you know, the greeds of capitalism and the evils of poverty. I mean, that is a project that's been picked up recently, right? The resurgence of the Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Barber and Liz Theo Harris, the theologian. And I think it gives me hope that certainly some groups at least are picking up the mantle in the ways that feel authentic to King's legacy. And that especially with the resurgence of the labor movement, potentially we're seeing some signs that you know some of this work is in play. Fingers crossed. So your conclusion leans heavily on Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here? And you draw a number of lessons from your work that are inspired by that question. Can you tell us about those lessons and, and what you regard as their significance? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I really drive home in the conclusion is this question of coming out of COVID-19, the way that we all suffered in our individual ways, whether it was the suffering of immense death and loss of jobs and extreme instability, or it was just the, the suffering of being isolated and alone and bored, right? All of these sort of the spectrum of emotion. I don't really know anybody who had a good time during COVID. And what I say is coming out of COVID, what are we living for if not one another? That's the line that I pose, and I feel it deeply. And for me, I turn toward those lessons from the civil rights movement and Dr. King, which for me show that the critical education and the spiritual education are actually pivotal to our movement forward. And that requires really advocating for, fighting for the critical education in schools and then also culturally. So we have to hold to task these media institutions that perpetuate these false histories because what I show throughout the book is that they have been complicit. They're the ones that have represented uncritically these right-wing false distortions of King and the civil rights movement and allowed them to move to the mainstream. And holding them to task means also politics of divestment and refusal. We have to refuse to play the same games and to play into that same political kind of divide and conquer strategy time and again. So for me, it's really the the deeper on a you know academic level, the deeper kind of critical thinking about 
the questions of why, why does the knowledge exist? You know, what do these memories tell us? Who's left out of them? What is the political project behind the collective memory? But then also these personal questions about what our purpose is in this world. I mean, as sociologists, we know that we're social beings. So again, it's that question, what are we living for then if we are not living for one another? It's an excellent question. Um, and, and it gets to the root of, of so many different things. Uh, I just want to take a moment to, to thank you for taking the time to talk today and, and really for your work on this project. It, it really is a fascinating study. But before I let you go, can I ask um, what's next? What are you working on? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm working on a couple things. Um, one thing that I'm actually excited about is I've been working with Blanca Ramirez, who is now a postdoc at UCLA, soon to be assistant professor at UT Austin. We have been working for years on a project looking at voter ID legislation in the South, and then its effects on the strategies of immigrant rights organizations. And so it's this question of spillover. You know, we often think about voter ID legislation as having kind of a direct line to voter engagement and whether people go to the polls or not. But we're actually thinking about it more at this meso level. And so what you know effect does it have on the way that groups are organizing and thinking about how to draw people into the fold of civic engagement? So that's one project. And then another project that's very early in the making, but that is really a direct continuation of this book, is one that thinks about the prospects of truth and reconciliation in the United States. And so it's taking up some of the questions from that Me Too chapter about Black feminism, and it's the question of whether at a grassroots level within our communities, if we can reckon with our local past, is there room for repair and moving forward in a more productive way together? That sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, Thank you. I, I, that Boy, um, yeah, I would invite you to come to Detroit. Um, <laughs> I'd love there to. Is, there is, a, I think there's a wealth of data to be to be learned from here. Um Gosh, that that sounds good. Um, well, again, I just want to thank you again so much for for your work and uh, for taking the time to talk today on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. So once again, my guest today has been Hajar Yazdia, the author of The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement, new from Princeton University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you are listening to the New Books Network.